Uh, Hal, Hal Farnsworth, our senior pastor, he is away this weekend. Some of you know he was, he was an RUF pastor at Mississippi State several years ago. He went there for a reunion this weekend, so you, you all can pray for him. He's preaching a couple times there, or probably only once today. Um, and you, you see here in your text, we're going to be looking at Mark uh, 15. Some of you will remember uh, that just a couple of years ago, we, we, preached through, we preached through the book of Mark here at Redeemer. I discovered earlier this week that a man named George Petter, uh, back in the 17th century, preached through the book of Mark for almost 25 years. Um, so that means he probably spent about eight months on this passage. So you'll forgive me if we just look at it one more time. Um, before I read the passage, let me, go ahead and, let me go ahead and pray for our time together. God, we are so thankful. We're so thankful to be here. Thankful that we can come into your presence by the blood of your Son to sing your praises, to sing about who you are and all that you've done for us, and to sing together, not only with the people in this room, but believers Around the world today, we can, we can sing about you and to you, uh, but now, God, we're also thankful uh, that we have an opportunity to hear from you, uh, that your word is not a dead word, but it is active and living, and that you continue to speak to us. So we pray that as we look at your word together, that your spirit uh, would be at work uh, in our hearts and in our ears, God, that you would teach us uh, all that all that we need to learn from this passage, and that you would move us, move us to greater praise and worship for who you are. We ask all this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, our passage is Mark 15. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can, you can turn to it. It's the second book of the New Testament, chapter 15. We're going to read the first 15 verses. It's also uh, printed there uh, in your bulletin. Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, many, 
Many of you know, probably know that I am, I'm from Augusta, about two hours away from here. Uh, it's a town famous for the Augusta National Golf Club and the Masters Golf Tournament. Uh, every year in the second week of April, my dad and I would play the license plate game because there were so many people from across the country always uh, driving around town. And somebody in my family has gotten tickets to the Masters every year uh, since sometime in the 1960s when, when it was a lot easier to get tickets. Apparently it's the hardest ticket to get uh, in the world, uh, but a lot of people from Augusta don't really treat it that way. Um, people actually in Augusta, they have their spring break on Masters Week because people want to leave Augusta when the Masters happens because of all the traffic uh, and everything else. Um, but you see, it's not that I don't enjoy the Masters. It's not, that, it's not that I don't think spending my day in great weather and cheap sandwiches and watching professional golf isn't a great way to spend the day. It's just that I'm kind of over it. Uh, I've done it. I've done it a lot of times. I don't know how many times I've been. Um, so when I go now, I'm just not, I'm just not really moved by it uh, the, way, the way that I used to be. And I wonder, I wonder if we in the church don't think of Christ's work uh, in the same way sometimes. Not, not that it's not important. Uh, not, not that you wouldn't be happy to say that it might even be the most important thing, but you're, you're just over it. Uh, you're, not really, you're not really moved by it uh, anymore. So is, is the work of Christ just part of a belief system that we call Christianity or is it a historical reality that moves you, that moves us uh, into worship? When we get to Mark 15, uh, we are in a fast-paced book that has all of a sudden come to a halt. Uh, Mark spends about three years, I'm sorry, he spends about ten chapters on the first three years of Jesus' ministry. And then in the last six chapters, he slows down to cover one week. And by the time we get to chapter 15... He spends a whole chapter on just one day. Mark slows down, and he wants us to really pay attention, to pay close attention uh, to these events, not to get bored, not to get over it, but to really slow down and reflect on what Christ did. Uh, In the previous chapter, there are a lot of famous uh, events in Jesus' life. We have the Last Supper, we have his betrayal by Judas as he's handed over to the chief priests, and we have Peter's denial. But when we get to chapter 15, what we, have, what we have is so important here that the thrust of the whole Old Testament had looked forward to these events. The rest of the New Testament is an interpretation and application of these events right here. What we have recorded in chapter 15 does not look forward to redemption, does not tell us about redemption. It is actually the accomplishment of redemption. And what I want us to see this morning is that in order to accomplish this, Jesus, the King of the Jews, he humbled himself for the sake of his people and proved himself to be the Lamb of God. That is, Jesus, the King of the Jews, he humbled himself for the sake of his people by proving himself to be the Lamb of God. So we're going to look at this in three ways this morning. We'll see that Jesus is silent before his accusers. We'll see that Jesus is a substitute for sinners, and we'll see that he is submissive uh, to the will of the Father. So he's silent, he's a substitute, and he's submissive. So the first thing we'll see is that Jesus is silent before his accusers. Look with me again at the first couple verses. And as soon as it was morning, 
The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You see, Jesus had already been found guilty the night before by the chief priests of blasphemy because he claimed to be the Christ. And they had agreed to put him to death. But in Roman-occupied Jerusalem, they had no authority to put anyone to death. And in fact, blasphemy wasn't really a crime in Rome anyway. It would not have mattered to Pilate that Jesus claimed to be the Christ. So they needed, they needed to fudge the charges. They needed to come up with something that would get Pilate's attention. So either, either a continuation of the meeting the night before or in a separate meeting where they gather quickly early in the morning, they, they, they agreed that what we're going to do is we're going to tell Pilate that he claims to be a king. This, this will bring charges of treason and will bring along with it the death penalty, which is what we're really after. So they conspire, they talk it over with Pilate, and then we have Pilate asking him, Are you the king of the Jews? You see, this is Psalm 2. Psalm 2 being lived out right in front of their faces. That the rulers of Jerusalem and the rulers of the Gentiles are conspiring together against the anointed one. And then we get this very, this very interesting response. And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. You have said so. It's a very interesting answer. It's it's almost like he's being coy, uh, but he definitely turns the accusation back on Pilate. You're the one that's saying it. One commentator says it's almost as though he said, you would do well to consider the question, Pilate. And this only enrages. This only enrages the chief priests all the more. More accusations come, probably the same ones that wouldn't hold up back in chapter 14. And all they get... For all their accusations is silence. The lamb does not defend himself. He actually actually doesn't speak again until he's on the cross later that afternoon. He only speaks when the accusation is true and gives no response to all the false accusations. Uh, The opposite, the opposite of what many of us would do. Earlier we read from from Isaiah 53, written almost 800 years earlier, that like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The lamb refused to defend himself. And we see that Pilate, Pilate is amazed. Why wouldn't he defend himself? You see, Pilate, Pilate's already beginning to gather that Jesus, at least in his eyes, is probably not that dangerous of a figure. Uh, Pilate's been a politician for a little while, and he, he can see when people are angling for something. Uh, he can, he's already beginning to see that Jesus is actually probably innocent, and the chief priests have just got it out for him. Why wouldn't he defend himself? Well, the lamb does not seek retribution, uh, not, because, not because he doesn't have the power, not because, not because he wouldn't have all the right arguments, but in 1 Peter Chapter 2, what he tells us is it's because he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. 
You see, it wasn't Jesus' weakness that kept him silent, but his trust in the Father's goodness, the trust in the Father's justice. I've been, I've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia uh, with my kids lately. Now, some of you will know that uh, Aslan in these books is, is this Christ figure. He's this great, enormous uh, lion. And in the first book, he actually does get killed uh, by the witch for the sins of another. Uh, but as he's being taken away uh, to the stone table to be killed, he's, he's wrapped up in ropes. Uh, they put a muzzle on his face, and they even, they even shave him uh, to try to make him look smaller. But as C.S. Lewis, as the writer, as he's, as he's describing these events, he keeps reminding the reader, one swipe, and he could take out several men. One bite, and he could take off uh, three or four heads. Uh, but Aslan remains silent. It's not in his weakness that he's silent, but his trust uh, in Narnian language, in his trust in the emperor's deep magic. You see, Jesus... Jesus is not silent because he couldn't do anything about it. He's silent because he trusts the one who is just. Uh, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, just the next chapter that I just mentioned, uh, Peter says that we uh, can follow Christ's example here by not returning evil for evil. There's at least a couple reasons that he says that. The first one is, well, we live in a world that rejected Jesus. This ought to affect how we think about and how we interact with the world around us. We should not be surprised when we're treated uh, with evil. We live in an unjust world. But of course the other reason is that we're tempted to respond to evil with more evil. But what Jesus wants us to see is that all the kingdom values are upside down. You You actually don't have to be right all the time. You can put all your trust in the one who judges justly. You can know that from the greatest sin down to the least, whatever has been committed against you, uh, it's not that it doesn't matter, but that only one of two things is going to happen with those sins. Either they're going to be washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ, or he will return to judge those sins himself. So we can follow We can follow the silent one and say with Paul, why not rather be wronged? Uh, You may may appear weak. You may appear weak when you do this, but we're actually at our strongest when we trust uh, in the Father's justice. So Jesus proves himself to be the lamb by remaining silent, and he did this not, not because he didn't understand what was going on, not because he was trying to be nice, but because he trusted the Father and he still, he still needed to make substitution. So we see that Jesus also is a substitute for sinners. Starting in verse 6, we see now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder and in, in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. You see, Pilate would like nothing more than to just get through this situation. 
He would love an opportunity to appease the crowds. He wasn't really a big fan of the chief priests. If he could make them mad, it was only a bonus. And he's beginning to think that he doesn't really think Jesus is guilty anyway. So he has this great occasion. There's this tradition in the land that says every year the Roman government allows the Jews to pardon someone. And it just so happens there's a really bad guy on hand. This guy, Barabbas, uh, they already know he's committed murder. He's participated in an attempted government takeover. Surely, if I put these two up next to each other in front of the crowd, they'll release this guy, Jesus, and I won't have to think about this anymore. But that's not exactly what happens. Uh, But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him released for them, Barabbas instead And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. That word instead in verse 11, I I think has a lot to tell us. Um, It's very plain here. An innocent man was traded uh, for a guilty man. We couldn't have a clearer picture of substitution. And Pilate says, why? Why why are you doing this? I I don't understand what's going on. And Mark doesn't give us a lot of commentary. He doesn't give us any commentary to tell us why they why they picked Barabbas. But I think... I think Barabbas may have been just, just the kind of Messiah that they were hoping for. Not a, not a weak man, not a man, who won't descend, not a man who won't defend himself, but a man who will lead us to some kind of victory, try to, try to take over. In fact, there, there's some really, I think there's some deep ironies going on uh, in this passage. Barabbas actually means son of the father. It's kind of a title for someone who would be a rabbi. And in some manuscripts of Matthew, we see that his name was Jesus Barabbas. So here in front of them, they have a choice to make, and they condemn an innocent man, Jesus, the son of God, and they free Jesus, the son of the father, a known insurrectionist and murderer. But if this, were only, if this were only a substitution for one man, it, it wouldn't be that significant. If this were just a one-to-one trade-off, it wouldn't actually be that important for you or I. But in Acts 3, in Acts 3, Peter tells us that the crowd acted in ignorance and that his death was for them. It wasn't just for Barabbas. This is, this is more than just a voluntary death of one innocent man in the place of one other guilty man. He took on this guilty man's punishment, but he also he took on the crowd's punishment as well. You see, all their sins were against him. He took on the punishment of the very ones that rejected him as they rejected him. Five or six years ago, Nan and I were in a pretty, pretty rough financial spot. Um, some of that was our fault. Some of it was, some of it was my fault. Uh, but many of you, 
Many of you came to our aid uh, during that time. Some of you surprised us with a week of groceries. Some of you just showed up to give us uh, a few hundred dollars of cash, and we, and we needed it. Um, we would not have made it without the help that, that many of you uh, gave us, help that came from your own generosity. It came from your own resources that you had earned and worked for, that you decided that you could let go of and, and give to us. And we were, I mean, we were very grateful for that. It was overwhelming uh, at the time. Those little substitutions you were willing to make to give away of yourself to care for us. But it, it doesn't quite capture, it doesn't really capture what Jesus uh, is doing here. Because you see, I can, I can almost guarantee you that if I'd spit in your face when you handed me the money, you would not have come back again next week. You would not have done it again. But Paul tells us in Romans 5 that it's while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. So did you know, did you know that you were in the crowd? Some, some, some of you may not, may not think you were in the crowd, but you were there. And I was, I was too. Because your sins are not generic. Your sins are not against some standard that floats up in the air, but they were against a person. All your sins, every one of them, was against Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, and He took your place to be a substitute for those sins. We sang earlier, it was my sin that held Him there. So what will you do? What will you do when the, when the weight of your guilt uh, begins to dawn on you? When you begin to realize that all your sins are against the God who made all things and against the only innocent man that ever lived, God's Son? Will you try to come to church more regularly? Will you try to just be a little bit nicer? Or will you cry out, thank God that Jesus Christ died for my sins? The just one for the unjust. Instead of, instead of your guilt, which is, which is very easy for me to remind you of, consider your substitute. Consider that He is all that you need. Do you, know, do you know this to be true? Do you know this to be true, yet you find that you, find that you struggle? You struggle to find it significant? Perhaps, perhaps you've forgotten uh, what it is that you deserve, and your own, all your own present sufferings are what's getting all your attention. But when we consider... When we consider what our sins deserve, when we consider what we earn, then it's then that we begin to see his patience, his tenderness, and his willing to suffer for you proves that he is not tired of dealing with your weaknesses. So we can pray. We can pray for thankful hearts that would count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ. That we'd be willing to lose even more if it meant that we could be found in Him. So we see that the crowd rejected Christ in favor of one that they thought was strong, but they still had to learn that victory for the Messiah was going to come in His submission. That Jesus has proved Himself to be the Lamb of God by remaining silent before His accusers and by being a substitute for sinners. But lastly, what we'll see is that Jesus submits to the will of the Father. In verse 15, it tells us, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. He delivered him. That word delivered also shows up earlier in verse 10 and in verse 1, when the chief priests are delivering him over to Pilate. And before that, Judas delivered him over to the chief priests. But what's underneath all this, what's coloring all these deliverances, is what Paul tells us in Romans 8, that the Father did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him for us. See, it's God's love for His people, His saving purposes that are behind all these deliverances of Jesus. And again, in Acts 2, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Sinclair Ferguson says it well. He says, Those who wanted to destroy Jesus were swept up in the eternal purposes of God himself. And Jesus here is not being, uh, he's not being manipulated. He's not simply being passive here. What we know from the rest of Scripture is that he laid down his own life. In John 10, he says he laid it down of his own accord. In Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike. He gave it away. This was the plan from all eternity. Revelation 13 says he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. See, Jesus has always been in agreement with the Father. So in Mark 10, he actually tells us that all these things are going to happen. He tells us he would be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they would condemn him to death, and they would hand him over to the Gentiles. And here he's simply executing the plan. You see, Jesus is actually the only one in control here. The priests are dominated by their envy. Pilate's dominated by his desire to keep the peace. The crowd is dominated by their own emotions and getting swept up in the heat of the moment. And Jesus is only controlled by his desire to please the Father and to love his people. So what will you do with the man called the King of the Jews? What will you do with the one who humbled himself and proved to be the Lamb of God for sinner's sake? Um, If you're skeptical, uh, if you're skeptical here this morning, not not skeptical that these events happened. Almost everyone believes they've happened. Even Bart Ehrman believes that they happened. 
but if you're skeptical that this actually matters, that it has anything to do with you, so what? I still have to go to work tomorrow. Uh, what, what does this have to do with me? Well, Paul, Paul tells us that his preaching, summed up in Christ and Him crucified, is life and death. That when the word of Christ is preached, it kills and it makes alive. That the work of Christ is not a matter of just philosophy or ethics or of having a good life. But they are real events that God accomplished in history. And you're, just, you're simply not free to be indifferent to these events. You would do well to consider the question. Jesus would say to you, Come, come all you who are weary and heavy laden to the only one, the only one that can give you rest. But for the believers, the believers here this morning, I want to ask you, are you moved? Are you moved by Christ's work or do you find it difficult to maintain this awe. Have you, have you begun to move on? You know, you know that in some sense you owe your life to him, but you just don't feel the weight of it. It's possible. It's possible that your faith is simply based on a tradition or based on someone's opinion that you happen to already agree with. But I think for many of you, uh, you're finding that it's just very hard to live by faith. It is very hard to put all your trust in things that you can't see. So we learn in Philippians 4 that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Slow down and consider that Jesus humbled himself and proved himself to be the Lamb of God for your sake. He did all of this for you. He was was silent for you, not in weakness, but in a great display of strength. He refused to defend himself for your sake. He was silent so that you could cry out, Abba, Father. He substituted for you, not because he was ignorant, but in a great display of the very wisdom of God, he took the punishment of the guilty so that he could give you righteousness, and he submitted himself to the Father for you, not with his hands tied, but in a great desire to glorify God and love his people. He was obedient unto death to give us life. Pilate was amazed with Jesus But he moved on. We are to be moved into everlasting worship. Let's pray.